0: And he
1: looks at me totally innocently and says, Accident, Mama. I never would have thought a little girl would ask for such a reward. Are you sure that is what you want, child? We love stories! It's time for the apple
2: seed. Filled with stories for you and your family. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's always a pleasure for me every time you tune in and bring these stories into your home and into your heart. And we always hope the stories we feature on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people you love. That's been our hope since the show first went on the air in 2013. And we plan to share many more stories, sparking many more memories and thoughts for you for years to come. Now, if you're new to the show, then you should know that when we say stories... The Appleseed. We're not talking about news. We're talking about tall tales and fairy tales and folk tales and family tales and historical tales and more. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers, including today, Stephanie Beneteau with a retelling of an old story called The King's Ring. Antonio Sacre with a story about being in the car with kids in L.A. traffic. And a little lesson in song from the great storyteller and songwriter Bill Harley. It's going to be a great time today that we'll spend together here on the Appleseed. And to kick off today's special episode, here's a story with which many a young parent might relate. It's from storyteller, singer, songwriter, Allison Downey. And if you've ever lost hours of precious sleep to a needy infant or nearly ripped your hair out in frustration as a toddler tested your patience, then you'll be bobbing your head right along with Allison's story, Maternal Instinct. We're happy to bring it to you right here on the apple seed.
0: So I'm holding my brand new baby, Michael, for the very first time. And my husband, John, has his arms draped around the two of us. And I feel this unbelievable joy. And then this rush of relief that Michael is, in fact, a baby. Because my entire pregnancy, he seemed so much more powerful than me. And it was really intimidating. I, even as dividing cells, he would make me throw up on command. And so it just got worse from there to the point where I started to worry that I wouldn't know how to mother such a powerful being. But I'm holding him, and he's just a little teeny tiny baby. He's completely dependent on me, and my maternal instinct kicks in, and I know that it's my job to protect him and to take care of his every need. Well, after about three months of round-the-clock hourly feedings, John and I are a little bit sleepy And a little bit crabby And we have both retreated to our equal and opposite extremes And I'm a performer And an academic And John is also a musician But he primarily works as a behavioral psychologist Now generally I don't hold that against him Uh. However When he suggests applying his crackpot theories To our defenseless little baby I have to intervene And I think the conversation goes something like this John says, sweetie This exhaustion is killing us. Some babies his age are sleeping through the night. I think we should consider sleep training. Sleep training? He's a baby! He's not a rat for your evil science experiment. And the conversation degenerates from there to John reminding me that he does have a PhD in this, and they don't just give those away. And my reminding him that his PhD is irrelevant Because I am Michael's mother and I know best. Wasn't I the one that diagnosed Michael's milk allergy when he was only five days old and the doctors thought I was crazy but my maternal instinct was right? And this is how our fierce debate of nature versus nurture begins, or as I thought of it, maternal instinct versus cruel heartless science. (laughs) But after another particularly brutal night, we broached the subject again, and um, John explains that at three and a half months, Michael no longer physically needs round-the-clock feedings. He's crying because he knows we'll pick him up. Our attention is positively reinforcing his behavior, but if we remove the reinforcer, our attention, he'll stop the behavior, the crying. And I don't believe that Michael is capable of manipulation at this age, but I am desperate. And so I agree to try what is commonly called the cry-it-out sleep training method. So, Michael is wailing in his room, and I am on the living room floor in the fetal position, rocking because his cries are like daggers stabbing into me. I'm physiologically connected to his well-being. I see all these women n- nodding their heads. Yes. And and the, he cries louder and it stimulates my milk production and I'm squirting all over the living room and I'm begging John to make it stop. And of course, he wants it to stop too, but for the long term. And he says, if we go in now, we make it worse. We're basically telling Michael that if he cries louder and longer, he can get whatever he wants. And then Michael stops crying. And I can see that Maybe John was right. Maybe. Until he uses the word extinction. See? It only works if we follow the rules of extinction to the letter. Extinction? Yeah, extinction. It's the, it's, it's the scientific term for completely removing the reinforcer. Extinction? He's a baby! He's not a dinosaur! Michael starts crying again. End of experiment. I run in his room to find him swimming in a puddle of vomit. He had vomited all over himself, and John and I are horrified. Extinction did this to him. See, there's no manipulation here. He needed me. Maternal instinct, one. Cruel, heartless science, zero. And for about the next year and a half, maternal instinct wins (laughs) about the lion's share of points, especially when we learn that Michael has not only eczema and not only... Uh, is allergic to milk, but he's allergic to basically everything, which makes him constantly itch and leaves him waking up at night itching. So sleep training, a.k.a. cruel, heartless science, could never work for Michael while he has these allergies. It would only torture him. But then Michael turns two. And he's a phenomenal toddler. He's funny and smart and creative, and he looks just like John. This ivory skin and soulful blue eyes and this White, blonde hair, and they even have the same bald spot. And John John has been traveling a lot ever since he started his new job, and we're missing each other terribly. And it's wearing on Michael, I can tell, because he started to act out, and he's waking me up at night begging for yet another bottle of his precious soy milk that he has named Mimi. Mimi. So I'm running on fumes, but we're overall having a really sweet time together. And we're playing in the park and making cookies. And for a special treat, I make a, a fancy dinner for just the two of us. And I'm dishing out my organic chicken and rice and veggies. And I look up to find Michael flinging his very expensive allergy-friendly dinner all over the burgundy shag rug like he was Jackson Pollock flinging paint. I said, Michael, what are you doing? And he looks at me totally innocently and says, "Accident, mama?" <laughs> no, no, baby, that's no accident. You mean to do that. An accident is when you do something you don't mean to do. And he thinks. He starts throwing his food again. "Accident, mama." Accident? No, no. That's not that's that's bold in my face lying. That's clear breakage of rules and and culinary etiquette and and my brain is telling me not to stifle his creative spirit, but my Natural maternal instinct wants to rip off his arm, and that is frowned upon, so I need to come up with another tactic Time out in your room And Michael's had maybe one or two times out in his entire life, so this should be really hard for him But he's prancing to his room like I'm sending him to Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory And I have two minutes to figure out what I'm going to do next And John has told me that punishment is defined by its outcome, so it's only a punishment if the unwanted behavior then stops. But Michael is singing in his room, which doesn't bode well for the success of my punishment. And I don't want to break his spirit, but people don't throw their dinners. So I need to come up with something more reinforcing to him than throwing his dinner. Helping. He loves to help. Timer goes off, Michael hops out of his room. Baby, I need your help. Let's clean up the rice together. Michael and Mama, okay? Okay, Mama. And we're on the floor on our hands and knees picking up rice and Michael slows down. And I see that instead he is mashing the rice into the carpet, making this kind of sticky, crumbly paste that I can already tell will be impossible to clean up. I say, Michael, you need to clean this up. And he stands up and looks at me without flinching as if he were the one that was three times my size instead of the other way around and says, no, mama, you clean up. Oh, what? People don't, people don't talk to their mother this way. And I'm flashing back to when I'm pregnant with him and he's kicking me around in my organs. And, and I need to have some control over this situation. This behavior needs to stop. And diplomacy didn't work and I can't negotiate with terrorists. I need <laughs> sanctions. Okay, Michael, you are going to bed without your bath tonight. And he smiles at me. Okay, then, no stories. And he moves his foot forward, about to crush another piece of rice. And I say, Michael, you have given me no choice. No Mimi. Mimi, I want my Mimi. And he collapses on the floor at the thought of losing his precious bottle of Mimi. And I am elated! I won! I won! I broke him! I beat the two-year-old! And then my humanity starts to return and my great sense of victory wanes as I realize that I am celebrating crushing my own baby spirit. And I am so sad for him. But the punishment matches the crime and the consequences are really hard so hard that I don't have to be, and I calm down. And I get what it must be like for him to have his life constantly controlled by someone else, and this drive to find a a chink in their armor and wrestle back some control. And I say, baby, I know this is hard. I'm sorry, but no Mimi tonight. And as I rock him, he eventually stops crying and falls asleep. The next day, I'm on the phone with John, who's giving me a pep talk. And we're dealing with some crisis that's keeping me from giving Michael my full attention. And I turn around to find him balancing on the back of the couch, about to go headfirst into the stone mantle. And I say, Michael, get down from there. And he leans out even farther and looks back at me for my reaction. And this is a safety issue since it's my job to protect him. So I just grab him and uh, I say, immediate time out. In my womb? No, on the bed. I mean, on the couch. And I'm putting him down on the, on the cushion when he looks up at me and says, Mama, I like it when you're angry. <laughs> what? You like it when I'm angry? And I have two minutes to figure out what to do with this new intelligence, and I really need to talk to John about it, but I can't have that conversation in front of Michael, so I gotta call him back. He likes it when I'm angry. Does he think I get angry a lot? Is it, is it the control thing again? He wants to get a rise out of me? And then I remember. If he likes it when I'm angry, then every time I get angry, I'm positively reinforcing his bad behavior, so I need him to not see that I'm angry. I need extinction. I need extinction. <laughs> Timer goes off, Michael hops back up to the top of the couch, careening for the emergency room, and I'm about to grab him when mama's getting angry, and I freeze, extinction, but this is dangerous, I gotta protect him, but it's also my job to take care of his needs, and he clearly needs boundaries, so I can't have him see that I'm angry, but I can't give in to his tactics, or he'll do it again, and I have to give him a sense of some control over the situation. So, Mama's getting it. No, I'm not, baby. I'm not not angry at all. I just, I love you, and I don't want you to hurt yourself. And I feel like I'm talking him down from the ledge. (laughs) Mama's not angry? No, baby, I'm not angry. But I do need to talk to Dada. So why don't you sit down, and I'll sit with you, and when I'm done, we can play, okay? And he stops. He thinks... He sits down. Mama's not angry? No, baby. Okay? Okay, mama, sure. And with my arm around my equally powerful and fragile little two-year-old, I call John back, who wants to know what happened, and I say, well, basically, about a billion points for behavioral science. And he laughs and said, well, if, if I just got a billion points, then the debate's over. We both win. Thank you.
2: recorded live before an appreciative audience. That was Maternal Instinct, a story from Allison Downey. Now coming up next, a story from Africa told by Stephanie Benito and a memory of my own as well. You won't want to miss a word. I'm Sam Payne.
3: You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment.
4: Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne.
2: I'm thrilled to be with you on this special episode of The Apple Seed. If you're just joining us, a moment ago you heard a story called Maternal Instinct about the long suffering young mother storyteller and songwriter Allison Downey. Now, as we said earlier on the show, we always hope the stories we bring you spark memories for you that you can share with the people that you love. And because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story for you to tell around the kitchen table or the living room, I sometimes like to share a memory of my own on the show. Here's one about a rare evening in my aunt's living room. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal.
5: The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed.
2: Have you ever found yourself in the doldrums I learned that word in elementary school, and I thought it sounded funny back then. I still think it sounds kind of funny. Doldrums. When someone says they're in the doldrums, they mean they're feeling unmotivated, a little directionless, maybe even a little depressed. It's a term that comes from sailors. There's a region in the ocean called the doldrums. It runs like a belt all the way around the equator of the Earth. And ships powered by wind, sailing ships, sometimes found themselves stuck there with no wind. It has to do with airflow and solar temperature and, you know, science-y stuff. But the bottom line is that a lot of the time there's no wind there. And a ship can be stuck in that region sometimes for weeks if it's a sailing ship. The sciency name for that region is the Intertropical Convergence Zone, the ITCZ. Some scientists call it the itch. But sailors have always had another name for that windless region where a ship can get stuck with no wind. They call it the doldrums. And that's a good way to understand that feeling you get when you say you're in the doldrums, that kind of stuck feeling, like whatever wind usually blows you toward the goals you have has kind of, well, stopped blowing, right? Well, maybe everyone finds themselves in the doldrums from time to time. I know I do. In fact, one time I was in a kind of doldrummy place and I decided to go visit family to see if it would make me feel better. And I wound up at my aunt's house. My aunt was, for many years, the caregiver for my grandpa in the last years of his life. And as we sat in my aunt's living room, My aunt and I wound up swapping stories about grandpa, even though he'd been gone for a long time. And, of course, she knew a lot more stories than I did. She grew up with him as her dad. Even grandpa's stories that happened before my aunt was born were a lot closer to her than they were to me. And she told me some of them. She told me, for example, about the first love story in my grandpa's life, about how grandpa's pals had thrown a party and how grandpa had fallen in love with a girl there about how they had sort of wandered away from the festivities and sat on a big rock together and talked all night. A story about how my grandpa danced with that girl close enough that he could hear her heart beating against his chest. About how, in fact, my grandpa had married that girl, Arilda Madeline Anderson, Rilla for short. And even about how my aunt is named after her. Rilla is my aunt's name. Now, the story of my grandpa and the party and the meeting of Arilda, that's not an epic tale, really. It's a quiet little story, like so many family stories are. It's not filled with heroics or fortunes. It's just a little moment, a moment to bring to life for me the story of my grandpa as a young man. But as my aunt told me the story, my own life, a life that for a frustrating few days had seen me stuck in the doldrums, seemed to come alive again. That story and the other stories that got told in my aunt's living room that afternoon seemed to get the wind kicking up again, and I left my aunt's house With my sails full and excited to move again through the beautiful world in which my grandfather had fallen in love and found work and done things that made his life meaningful, learning a little about the chain of humans in which I am myself. A link, well, it filled me with new life. Blew me right out of that stuck place I was in. That's not the only time I've felt stuck. It's not the only time I've found myself in the doldrums And it's not the only time I've been rescued by the little stories of my people, my family. I remember feeling that way a lot in the time of pandemic. A lot of people did. Maybe you did. Maybe you do. And my siblings and I made a practice of getting on a video call with each other once a week. We still do that. And I've got a brother in Salt Lake City and one in L.A. and one in Tennessee and a sister in England. And we get together to, I don't know be in the doldrums together. And in order to lift each other's spirits, we have found ourselves turning more often than to anything else, to family stories, memories of our own childhoods, stories that we know about our parents and grandparents, sharing with each other the stories of the people from whom we came. Well, somehow it's made an enormous difference. The winds of our own family energy begin to blow. Our sails fill and we get moving again, powered by the strength of the stories of generations of people who lived lives and fell in love and got sick and got better and suffered losses and had some triumphs and lived in the beautiful world in which now we're all trying to make our own way.
5: The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne A tiny little story for you and your family Right when you need it On the Appleseed
2: Thanks for joining me for that entry In the Radio Family Journal And up next you're going to hear a story From Canadian storyteller Stephanie Beneteau It's a retelling of a very old story About a poor young girl Whose life turns a corner When she finds the king's missing ring but finding the ring is far from the happy ending of the tale. Here's The King's Ring, told for you by Stephanie Benetto on The Appleseed.
1: There once was a village in Africa where hunger came for a visit. Why did hunger choose this village? We don't know, but it did. The crops died and the wells dried up. The cows gave no more milk. Hunger made itself at home. It sat in the sad eyes of the old people, the weak arms of the men and women who could no longer work, and the swollen bellies of the children. There was one little girl in that village who thought, "'I will not die. I will go searching for life.' So she left that village. She walked and walked until she arrived at a village where people were bustling about, preparing for market day. There were stalls laden with squash and yams, fish and chicken. She went up to a man who was putting out some fish and asked for work. But when he saw her, he laughed. "'How can you work?' he asked. You can barely hold up your own head. The little girl went from one person to the other, but the answer was always the same. Look at you, the people laughed. Work? How can you work? Bone bag. Skeleton. Swell belly. You spoil the view. Get out of our town. And they picked up sticks and stones and chased her away. She went to another town, and another, and another, but always it was the same thing. People laughed and taunted her and chased her away. Finally, the little girl's legs gave out beneath her and she fell to the ground by the side of the road. And that is when the little girl left the road to death and walked back into life. And this is how it happened. As she lay in the dirt, she heard a voice. Looking up, she saw a tall man richly dressed in a fine red cloak, walking down the road and calling, Hear ye, hear ye. His Majesty the King has lost his favourite ring. It is made of gold. On it there are three snakes. The one in the middle has a diamond in its mouth. A rich reward will be offered to anyone, man, woman or child, who returns this ring. Hear ye, hear ye. Hear ye hear Just then, ye. the little girl saw something shining in the dirt by her hand. She picked it up. It was a ring. It was made of gold with three snakes on it. The middle one held a diamond in its mouth. Slowly she stood up and walked all the way to the palace of the king. But when she got there, she saw the palace was surrounded by a huge wall and there was only one gate to get in and blocking that gate stood a man. Now when I say tall, you must think tall as a tree. His legs were as thick as logs, and at the end of his arms his fists bloomed like huge cabbages. The little girl was frightened, but she bravely looked up at him and said, Excuse me, I would like to be let in to see the king. The great man roared with laughter. <laughs> you think the king lets beggar girls into his court? Go away before I smash you with my fist. But I have found the king's ring, she said, and opened her hand to show it to him. The gatekeeper scratched a scab on his cheek and smiled a nasty smile and leaned down to look her in the eye. Sure. "'I'll let you pass through this gate, but on one condition. "'You must promise to give me half the reward the king will give you "'for returning his ring.' "'Did the little girl want to share her reward with him? "'No, but she could well see "'that she would not get through the gate otherwise, "'and thinking at least she would have the other half, "'she gave him her word. "'And if I don't get my share... I'll crush you like a pumpkin, he snarled as he opened the gate. She passed through and he closed it behind her. Once inside the gate, the little girl saw the palace was surrounded by fields of grain and gardens and grazing cattle and goats. She walked and walked up a great avenue until at last, exhausted and starving, she arrived in front of the palace. It was a big square building with no windows and there was only one door to get in. And there, standing in front of it, was the doorkeeper. As much as the gatekeeper was huge, the doorkeeper was small. He was all dressed in black. Black robe, black boots, black bracelets around his wrists. He looked right through her as if she weren't even there. Excuse me, I would like to be let in to see the king, said the little girl. The doorkeeper looked at her. Look at you. Skeleton. Moon belly. Bag of bones. Go away before I feed you to my cat. But... But I have found the king's ring, cried the little girl, and she held out her hand to show him. The doorkeeper looked down at the ring, and a greedy look came into his eyes. Well, well, he said. So today is your lucky day, swell belly, and it's mine too, because you must promise to give me half your reward before I let you through. But I've just promised the other half to the gatekeeper There will be nothing left for me." The doorkeeper picked her up by the collar and threw her down onto the ground. I will make your skull into a flower pot, he hissed. The little girl looked behind her. The road back was long, and there was only hunger and death waiting for her there. So thinking she would like to see the king's palace once before she died, she agreed to give him half the reward and he opened the door and pushed her through. She found herself in an enormous hall. At the end of the hall sat the king, surrounded by his counselors. As she slowly walked towards him, they all stopped talking and stared. She was so thin, her bones went click-clack as she walked. She knelt before the king and held out the ring. "'I believe this is yours,' she said. "'The king took the ring and put it on his finger. "'It fit perfectly. "'He laughed out loud and said, "'Little girl, you have earned your reward "'and never have I been happier to give one. "'Now what do you want? "'Do you want food, land, cattle, gold and silver? "'Whatever you ask for is yours.' There were many things that little girl wanted. But whatever she asked for, she would have to give to the gatekeeper and the doorkeeper, and she didn't want to do that. Then she had an idea. Do you promise to give me whatever I ask for? Of course, child, said the king. Then all I want as a reward is for you to beat me one hundred times with the biggest, heaviest stick in your kingdom. "'What?' cried the king. "'I never would have thought a little girl would ask for such a reward. "'Are you sure that is what you want, child?' "'You gave me your word,' she said, "'and that is what I want.' "'The king sadly turned to his guard. "'Take her, and beat her, as she has asked, since I gave her my word. "'But do not do it here. I I cannot watch.' The guard grabbed the little girl by the arm and was about to pull her outside when she cried out, Wait! This reward does not belong to me. It belongs to the gatekeeper and the doorkeeper because I promised to share it between the two of them. And she told the king the whole story. And when the king heard the story, he laughed and laughed until tears streamed down his face. And when he was finished laughing, he called the two men. They stood looking down at their boots. Is it true, said the king, that it is to you I must give the great reward I offered this little girl?
6: Yes, Your Majesty. majesty."
1: Then take them outside and give them their reward, yelled the king. And they were very surprised indeed when the soldiers dragged them outside, pulled down their pants and beat them each fifty times with the biggest, heaviest stick you have ever seen.
6: Ouch! 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 Ouch!
1: as for the little girl the king said to her that was my reward for returning the ring and now i would like to give you a reward for bringing justice to my palace so he kept her with him for many days feeding her until she was strong again and then He sent her back to her village with wagons and wagons loaded full of grain and vegetables and cattle and goats and sheep and seeds to plant for the following year. And when the people of her village saw her coming, they welcomed her with open arms. And together they chased hunger away from that place. And hunger did not come back to that village for seven times seven generations. And if you don't believe me, you can go to that village. That little girl's granddaughter's granddaughter is still there, and she is the one who told me this story.
2: King's Ring, told for you by Stephanie Benito That's from a collection of stories called Dreaming Tall, stories for growing girls. Up next, a musical magical tale from Odds Bodkin, a story about being stuck in traffic with little ones from Antonio Sacre, a tale of heroes from Dan Kedding, and more. Stick around. You won't want to miss a word. I'm Sam Payne.
7: You're listening to The Appleseed.
3: We'll be back in a moment.
4: Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne.
2: It's such a pleasure for me to join you today on The Appleseed. And if you're just joining us, before the break, we brought you a story called The King's Ring from Stephanie Benetto. And coming up on the program, you're going to hear from Odds Bodkin, Dan Ketting, and many more. But first, we're delighted to bring you a story from Antonio Sacre. Antonio lives in Los Angeles, but joined us right here in the Appleseed studio to tell us this story. We think you'll love it. Antonio Sacre with Nina's
8: First Rainbow on the Appleseed. Thank you. It is great to be here i live in los angeles and every june as we're driving down the street there's that guy who gets out of the car he's got the number one dad shirt on on father's day and my children always say dad how did he win the number one dad and i think about it, I said, well, honey, I think it's the number of mistakes I make in a day. And my children love to recount all the mistakes I make in a day. And usually the first mistake of the day happens within five or six minutes of waking up. But we were driving in the car about five years ago in the middle of an epic Los Angeles drought. My daughter was three years old and she had never seen rain in the car. I grew up on the East Coast. I grew up in Delaware, and so I have these memories of watching the raindrops beat against the window, and seeing the drops form into other drops and have race drops as they would come down. We didn't have iPads back then, so I was like, <laughs> that was how I would do it. And we just would listen to the rain, and then we'd go under a bridge, and then the sound of the wipers, and then the rain again. And as we are driving along, I'm doing the thing that I do. I'm looking in the rearview mirror and trying to prevent them from fighting. When I was a kid, there was no such thing as seatbelts or car seats. And so we were free-range kids to fight as much as we could in the back seat. But my kids are in 19-point harnesses, so they're just all like this. And somehow they are able to reach out of the harness and start punching and fighting. So I'm looking in the rearview mirror, and I'm trying to mitigate. No, 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 Henry. No, 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 no. Put your hand back in that... Okay, driving along. And now Nina is getting into the act. Nina, no, 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 stop, stop that thing that you're just, stop that. My wife, eyes on the road, eyes on the road, Los Angeles traffic. And I'm trying to mitigate the fighting in the backseat when all of a sudden it starts to rain. And my daughter looks out of the window. Daddy, what's that? Ah, it's rain, honey. It's rain. And for a moment, we have silence in the car. It's beautiful. There's no fighting. We're just watching the rain. And I'm thinking about the Volare station wagon in the 1970s, and my mom listening to the AM radio, those old songs about love. And it's peaceful in the car, and maybe this year, I'm going to win the number one dad. And we're moving <laughs> along. When the fighting starts happening again, and there's quick descent into the mistakes that I make in a day. St- put, no snacks for either one of you, if you keep that up. Stop it. There's no dinner for either one of you. And my wife's calming hand on my knee, it says to me, just breathe, and I do. And I'm watching my children again, watching the rain, and the fighting starts again. And now I'm at my wits end when, miraculously, in the middle of this drought-marred city, a rainbow appears in the sky, symbol of God's love from ages and ages ago. And I whisper just loud enough for the whole car to hear, a rainbow. And my son looks out of the window, and he says like an incantation, like a prayer, a rainbow. And my wife looks out and she says, a rainbow. And my three-year-old daughter looks out the other way and says, where? (laughs) I can't see it. (laughs) Oh, honey, just turn your head to the right. Uh, I still can't see it. No, honey, turn your head. Down, love, what the, turn your head all the way around to the other side. I still can't see the rainbow. And now she's sobbing. No, it's a rainbow? What's a rainbow? And they're like, turn your head around. Just turn and look at the rainbow. It's beautiful and peaceful. Look at the rainbow. And she's, ah, and she's crying. And my wife says, honey, just pull the car over. Oh, it's that easy. I pull the car over and she extracts that screaming gorgon from the back seat and <laughs> holds her up to the sky. And Nina sees her first rainbow ah, thanks, Mommy. (laughs) And our hearts melt and smiles in our face, and then we sit down on the edge of the road, and then the clouds come over and the rainbow's gone. And Nina looks up at me and she says, Daddy, again. And I go into a monologue about the precociousness of precipitation and how you need an angle of the light in between that refracts and it creates the colors. And my wife is observing the weather, and she sees the wind blowing. She says, honey, just be quiet. And she goes like this like some ancient goddess, and the cloud moves away, and the rainbow reappears, and Nina's all smiles again, and she says, thanks, mommy. See, daddy, mommies are the best. And that is Nina's first rainbow.
2: Thanks for joining us for that story called Nina's First Rainbow, told for you by Antonio Sacre. That's from a collection of stories called The World's Second Best Dad, recorded right here in the Appleseed Studio. From time to time, we invite some of our favorite storytellers to come and perform for us and for our studio audience. Later on in the program, you're going to hear another such performance, this time from Bill Harley. But up next is another story you're sure to enjoy. Odds Bodkin infuses music into his storytelling. He plays a ton of instruments, and here you'll hear him play the harp as he breathes all kinds of life into a very old tale. The story you're going to hear is The Three Spinning Fairies from a collection of stories called The Wise Little Girl. Here's Odds Bodkin on the Appleseed.
7: Once upon a time there lived a girl who hated to spin. In those days it was a girl's duty to do nothing but spin. This irked her old mother to no end. What's the matter with you? do did you want to spin? Mother, I hate to spin. day they argued about the girl not wanting to spin. Well, one day, galloping along, a great team of horses appeared, drawing the carriage of the queen herself. And as the carriage of the queen approached the little hut, the queen overheard, Well, the queen walked in and said, Hello! It's the queen! Hello! Yes, it is! Hello! Oh, your majesty! Well, I couldn't help but over here that you're arguing about something. What is it? <laughs> you're arguing with your poor daughter here. What's the matter with her?
9: Oh, your majesty! It's just a daughter!
7: The woman couldn't bring herself to tell the truth, so she lied. You mean she's an industrious girl? Oh, she's so industrious, I can't okay. stand it. She won't do nothing else. Aha! Uh-huh. Well, that's just the sort of girl I want to be the wife of my son, the prince. <laughs> come with me. You will come to my castle. The poor girl rolled her eyes and said, Oh, no. And into the carriage they climbed, the queen and the girl, and off toward the palace they went. Well, it wasn't long thereafter before the queen ushered the girl into an immense room from floor to ceiling, full of unspun flax. Here we are, paradise. (laughs) Now listen, if in three days you can spin all this, flax, into beautiful, 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 beautiful linen, I will let you marry my son, the prince, for I want him to marry an industrious girl, but if you fail, well, <laughs> I'll have to chop off your head. <laughs> Goodbye, and <laughs> she slammed the door, leaving the poor girl alone, who said, oh no, uh, what will I well, she wept for two and a half days, until upon the third day at night, the night before the queen was to come to see if any of the flax had been spun. cause none had. She heard a... on the door. Oh, dear. Who's there? The door opened. And in walked three of the funniest-looking old ladies the girl had ever seen. Oh, my! Who are you? Well, one of them had a great foot, three times the size of her other foot. One had a thumb, ten times the size of her other thumb. And one had a lip, a lower lip, that fell all the way to just in front of her tummy. Whew. Who are you? We we spin, we spin, we spin. Yes, we spin, we spin, we spin. You spin? Yes, we spin, we spin, we spin. Oh, I, I don't suppose you'd like to spin any of this, would you? Oh, yes, we will, we will, we will, we will. You will, we will, we will, we will. But, but, but. Yes, but you must promise us something, something, something. Uh, I'll promise you anything if I don't have to spin this stuff. Yes, yes, yes. You will be married and we would want you. Yes, we would. Yes, 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 we would. Yes, we would. We would want you to invite us to your wedding feast. Your feast, your feast, your wedding feast. Yes, your feast. And you must say that we are your aunties. That's it? That's it. Oh... I promise, spin, (laughs) I don't ever want to see it, spin, spin. And so, the three fairies, for they were the three spinning fairies indeed, went to work. The one with the great foot worked the treadle of the spinning wheel and around and around and around it went. The one with the great thumb spun the spindle whirling in the air, turning the spun flax into thread, and the third licked with her great lower lip the final turning of the thread so it would hold together, and all the night they spun. Until just before dawn, They quietly left, and in walked the queen.
9: Well, good!
7: Look, you delicate, you wonderful girl! Look at you! You're just the girl for my son! Come, come, we'll be married right away! Come this way! And out walked the girl. Well, it wasn't long thereafter, the very same day, in fact, that the wedding feast was held. And for the first time she beheld the young prince, quite handsome he was. Oh, they danced, then they feasted. But in the midst of the feast, suddenly, there came a knocking on the door. And in walked the three funny-looking old ladies. The company there assembled looked aghast at them. And the prince turned and said, (laughs) Uh, My love, do you happen to know these three people? And true to her word, the young girl said, Oh, yes, I do. They're my aunties. May they stay and sit with us here, husband? They're they're your aunties? (laughs) Well, (laughs) I suppose. (laughs) Oh, dear. And he watched the three funny ladies sit down. All eight. The young prince, however, could not keep his eyes off the three funny-looking old women. And finally, he leaned toward his wife, and he whispered in her ear... Uh. <laughs> My love, I was just, you know... <laughs> curious. <laughs> curious, huh? Although, though your aunties, those funny-looking women... <laughs> um, uh, tell me... How did the one... Uh, the one with the... With the gigantic foot... <laughs> However, did the foot get so big? <laughs> his wife looked at him.
9: Oh, from spinning.
7: Spinning. <laughs> spinning, yes. Uh, he looked at his wife's dainty foot. Yes, uh, and, and, and I couldn't help but, but wonder about the, the one with the, with the, the big thumb. That's <laughs> bigger than me. <laughs> um, uh, However, how did the thumb become so large, my love? Oh, husband, it's from spinning. Spinning. <laughs> oh, I see. Uh, and I uh, couldn't help but notice that the, the one with the with the, the great lip, <laughs> the one that comes to a tummy. <laughs> How'd it get that way?
9: Oh, husband, husband, from spinning.
7: Spinning. <laughs> I see. Oh dear. <laughs> You're a good spinner, aren't you? Yes, I am. He looked at his wife's dainty hands, beautiful for holding, her kissable lips, wonderful for kissing, and her dainty foot, suitable for dancing. And suddenly he rose up, and he commanded the silence of all the company there assembled, and he said, I, I've made a decision, <laughs> a decision. Henceforward, uh, uh, my lovely wife will never... Spin again. And you know she never did.
2: Odds bodkin with the three spinning fairies here on the apple seed. And up next, a story from Chicago storyteller Dan Kedding. Now, Dan is known for telling folk tales from all over the world and some tales that he made up himself. But he also tells stories about his own life. Some of them are humorous, others are thought-provoking. They're mostly just a little bit inspiring. And this story, called The Hero, is certainly no exception. We've been teasing this story all hour as a story about heroes, but it doesn't start out that way. Here's Dan Kedding to explain
10: a hero on the Appleseed. When I was in seventh grade, I had a hero. It wasn't Mickey Mantle or Roger Maris. wasn't Jackie Robinson. wasn't any of the great screen greats that we would watch on Saturday morning like Errol Flynn. No, my hero was somebody very, very different. Let me tell you about seventh grade. In my neighborhood in Chicago, we liked to play baseball, and we played baseball all the time. Sometimes we played league, hardball, and most of the time we played Chicago-style softball with a big, huge 16-inch softball. We played baseball constantly. Sometimes we'd even paint the baseballs blue and green and red so we could play in the wintertime and we could see it in the snow. We loved to play baseball, and I was a pretty good baseball player. But my best friend Paul, he was the worst baseball player in the entire school. My gosh, if you hit a fly ball out to Paul, It was an adventure. His hands would stay about three feet apart and he'd scream, I got it, I got it! And the ball would zoom right in and boom! Hit him in the forehead, bounce over his head. Every year, Paul came to school with a brand new pair of glasses. And by the end of September, they were held together by a thick wad of white tape. He had broken his glasses trying to catch a high fly. Yeah, Paul was a horrible baseball player. He couldn't catch the ball if you walked up and put it in his hands. And as far as hitting, My gosh, if he held the bat still and you aimed the ball at it, he'd find a way to miss. He might have been a horrible baseball player, but he was the smartest kid in seventh grade. Probably the smartest kid in the whole school. But he never bragged. When he got a test back and it had a hundred on it or an A+, he never held it up and said, hey, look what I got. He would quietly fold it, slip it into his desk. He wasn't that kind of guy. And if he saw that One of the other kids was doing really badly. He would walk up to him and say, hey, you know, I'm having problems with this model airplane I'm building. I'm having problems painting it. If you help me paint it, I'll help you with your math. Now, everybody knew that Paul didn't need any help. He had dozens and dozens of airplanes suspended from the ceiling of his bedroom. He was the best model builder also. But that was his way of trading with people, making him feel good, about him helping them. its the kind of guy he was. Well, in seventh grade, just before fall really set in, you know, when it's September and it's still kind of summery, we had a new kid move into the neighborhood. After the second day he was in school, we all forgot his name, and we just called him the bully, because that's what he was. He was a big bully. And he observed the code of bullyhood to the letter. Rule number one, never pick on anyone bigger than you. Rule number two, always pick on people smaller than you. He was good at it. He hung out by the fence in the schoolyard. He terrorized little kids and opened their lunch boxes and dumped out their lunches and took away their milk money. He was just a mean kid. Now, our schoolyard was right near a big boulevard, and so we couldn't hit over the fence home runs. If we did, it went on the boulevard and we weren't allowed to go out there. For us, a home run had to hit the fence. One day we were playing baseball. We had a new position for Paul, it was called the out-outfield, it was behind the center fielder. I was up to bat and I hit a towering fly ball, it went over the center fielder's head and there was Paul, hands stretched three feet wide screaming, I got it, I got it! The ball screamed in, hit him in the forehead, bounced over his head and it rolled to the feet of the bully. Paul walked over and the bully picked up the ball. The bully said, You want this? Paul said, Yeah. Can we have the ball back? And the bully said, Say please. Paul smiled and said, Sure, please. And the bully took the ball and hit Paul in the face with it really hard and knocked him off his feet. I saw what happened and I yelled, Hey! and started running across the baseball diamond into the outfield. And when the bully saw me running towards him, he ran for the school building. I got there and Paul was down on his hands and knees his hands were all scraped up where he hit the ground and he had a bloody nose I helped him into the school just as the bell was ringing for the end of recess we went to the boys room and I helped him clean up and when we got back to the classroom we both got in trouble for being late as we passed the bully's desk I looked down and in a voice that everyone in the room heard except for Sister James Vincent I said today after school But a strange thing happened. After school, the bully disappeared. And the next morning, I got to school kind of early and he was already in the building. By the time lunch recess came along, I'd forgotten all about it. All I wanted to do was play baseball. We always took turns choosing up sides, and today it was Paul's turn to be captain. I said, OK, Paul, pick your first player. I was confident. Paul always picked me. We were best friends. Paul looked past my shoulder, past the baseball diamond, past the outfield, over by the fence, and there was the bully. Paul walked across the baseball diamond into the outfield, walked right in front of the bully and said, I pick you. The bully said, what? I pick you. You want to play on my team today? And the kid looked at him and said, no one's picked me to play since I moved here. Paul said, well, I'm asking you, do you want to play? the bully said, yeah, yeah, I'd like to a lot. And he followed Paul across the outfield. And somewhere between second base and home plate a miracle occurred. The bully disappeared and a boy named Jim took his place. And Jim played baseball with us every day. He wasn't much better than Paul but he was a lot of fun to be around. And he stopped terrorizing the little kids and he stopped beating up people who were smaller than him. He started to have fun being one of us, all because of Paul, my hero.
2: The Hero, a story shared for you by Chicago storyteller Dan Kedding. If the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories or thoughts for you, let us know about it. Send us an email at theappleseed at byu.edu. We'd love to hear from you. There's a lot more coming up on the next hour of the Apple You can hear from Donald Davis, Diane Edgecombe, Diane Ferlat, Bill Harley, and more. You won't want to miss a word. I'm Sam Payne. Mm-hmm.
11: Any more of your lies and nonsense, Mosquito? I'd never had more than eight colors in my whole life. And all of a sudden, here I had every color anyone could imagine. We love
2: stories! It's time for another hour of stories for you and your family on the Appleseed. Since 2013, we've been bringing you tall tales, and personal tales, and fairy tales, and folk tales, and historical tales, and more. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. And we want to remind you that there are all sorts of ways to listen to the show. You can hear us all over the country at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on Sirius XM Channel 143. But the easiest way to make sure you never miss an episode is to Google the Appleseed Podcast, and then subscribe for new episodes just about every day, right at your fingertips. Now, coming up this hour of the show, you You're going to hear stories from Donald Davis and Diane Edgecombe and Diane Ferlat, Bill Harley. and You're going to hear a great conversation with Alabama storyteller Dolores Haddock. And first, because stories like to find storytelling explanations for why things are the way they are, we're going to bring you a story from Bobby Norfolk, a three-time Emmy Award-winning storyteller. His storytelling is enough to win over even the hardest of hearts. And in this next story, you're going to learn why mosquitoes buzz in people. People's ears. Here's Bobby Norfolk on the Appleseed.
5: This West African tale is about a giant African insect that makes people slap and scratch and grab themselves wherever this thing bites you. It's called a mosquito. This mosquito got a lot of animals in trouble. The lion had to get these animals out of this trouble. The story is called... Why mosquitoes buzz in people's ears. The story opens up in the forest and it's early morning and the sun has just arisen and the sun is still pink and it's making the sky a pinkish blue. The first animal on the scene is a large lizard called an iguana. And the iguana is walking through the forest by himself, minding his own business. And a huge mosquito flies down over the iguana. Bzz, 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 bzz. He said, Hey, Mr. Iguana, bzz. I bet I can tell you something you don't know. Bzz. The iguana looked up. Well, try me, mosquito. The mosquito said, bzz. I saw a farmer digging up sweet potatoes almost as big as I am. <laughs> iguana thought for a moment he said what is the comparison between a mosquito and a sweet potato i don't want to hear any more of your lies and nonsense mosquito and at that the annoyed iguana went over to a bush broke off two twigs plucked them in both ears said now i can't hear any more of your nonsense and lies and at that the annoyed iguana went off into the reeds. dumb mosquito i don't like mosquitoes anyway well As the iguana was headed one way, a large snake called a python was headed the other way. The python saw the iguana and rose up in the air. Well, good morning, Mr. Iguana. How are you? The iguana did not see him or hear him. The iguana kept walking. Dumb mosquito. I don't like mosquitoes anyway. The snake looked. Well, why wouldn't he speak to me? I haven't done anything to him. He must be planning some evil against me. I better look for some place to hide. I better look for some place to hide. And at that, the panicked snake looked for some place to hide. And the first place he sought to hide was a hole in the ground. And into the hole the big snake went. But little did he know that that was the home of a rabbit. And when the snake went in the front door, the rabbit went out the back. Wah! The rabbit ran for her very life, running, running, running as fast as she could across the field. And a big crow was flying over the field and saw the rabbit running for her life. Pyong! The crow looked, wow, what's chasing her? Now it was the crow's duty to call for danger in the forest. And so off the crow went, Ka, 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 danger, danger, danger. The first animal to hear the danger call was the monkey. Now it was the monkey's duty to help the crow alert the other animals of danger in the forest And so off through the trees the monkey went alerting the other animals of danger in the forest Well the monkey happened to grab a dead tree branch And when he grabbed it he put his weight on it and the branch broke crack Wow And the monkey started falling through the air. But the monkey was so agile that he flung himself around, grabbed another tree branch. But that dead limb that he broke continued to fall. There was a nest of baby owlets below that were three in the nest. The limb hit one, pow, and killed it. Now, Mother Owl was not home at the time. Because even though owls are nocturnal creatures that hunt at night, Mother Owl was out very early in the morning looking for some food for her babies. And when she returned to the nest, she looked and saw one of the owlets dead. And she asked what had happened. The other two babies said it was the monkey. The monkey killed the baby. Now, Mother Owl's duty was to hoot for the sun to rise every morning. Because if she didn't hoot for the sun to rise, the night would continue. And so all of that day and all of that night, Mother Owl sat in her nest brooding over her dead baby owlet. And she was so very, very sad. And when the night should have ended, Mother Owl did not hoot for the sun to rise, and so the night continued on and 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 all the animals began to rumble, where's the sun, where's the sun, where's the sun, where's the sun? And so King Lion knew that he had to step in at this point. So he called a meeting of all the animals in the forest. And he said, Mother Owl has not called for the sun to rise so the day can come. So a meeting was called. All the animals sat down around a big clearing around a council fire. Boom, 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 boom. King Lion then stepped to his throne. Boom. He looked around, mother owl was not at the meeting. She was too saddened to come. He stood up, antelope, fetch me mother owl. The antelope ran off, biggity biggity biggity
7: biggity, 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 biggity,
5: Soon came back with that big bird. The lion looked at the owl, mother owl, the night has lasted long, long, much too long. Why have you not called for the sun to rise so the day can come? Mother owl said. Oh, King Lion, I would call for the sun to rise, but the monkey killed one of my babies, and now I just can't bear to call for the sun to rise so the day can come. The lion said, The monkey? It was the monkey? So, you mean to tell me it was the monkey who killed the owlet, and now Mother Owl won't call for the sun to rise so the day can come? Where's that monkey? The Monkey King? on ee Over here, King Lion! Now, King Lion, listen to me, it wasn't my fault. Believe me. I was just trying to help the crow. I heard the crow calling for danger in the forest And then I grabbed the dead tree branch and then it accidentally fell into the nest and killed the baby I'm sorry, but if you blame anybody you blame that crow and not me the lion said the crow It was the crow So, you mean to tell me that it was the crow who alarmed the monkey who killed the owls, and now Mother Owl won't call for the sun to rise so the day can come? Where's that crow? That big bird came up. Oh, over here, King Lion. Hey, wait a minute. Now, listen to me. It wasn't my fault. It wasn't my fault at all. The rabbit. I saw that rabbit running for her very life in the middle of the daytime, and I was just trying to help the rabbit. Now, if you blame anybody for anything, you blame that rabbit and not me. The lion said, "The rabbit. It was the rabbit." So you mean to tell me that it was the rabbit who alarmed the crow, who alerted the monkey, who killed the owlet, and now mother owl won't call for the sun to rise so the day can come. Where's that rabbit? Rabbit say, "Yo, over here." King lion, now wait a minute. Now listen to me. I was in my own house, minding my own business, when that big snake, that python, came in and chased me out. If you blame anybody, you blame that python and not me. The lion said, This is getting interesting. The python? It was the python? Oh! You mean to tell me it was the python who scared the rabbit, who alarmed the crow, who alerted the monkey, who killed the owlet, and now Mother Owl won't call for the sun to rise so the day can come? Where's that big slithering beast? That snake came up to the front of the line. Psss, pss, pss, pss. Now, King Lion, listen to me. It wasn't my fault at all. It was that iguana. I spoke to that iguana this morning. He wouldn't speak back to me. And I knew he was playing some evil trick against me. If you blame anybody for anything, you blame that iguana and not me. The lion said, the iguana?
12: The iguana?
5: Tell me it was the Iguana who frightened the python, who scared the rabbit, who alarmed the crow, who alerted the monkey, who killed the owlet, and now Mother Owl won't call for the sun to rise till the day can come? Where's the Iguana? The Iguana was not at the meeting, still had sticks in his ears, and didn't hear the call. Antelope, you know your job. The antelope ran off to fetch the iguana. Boogity, 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 Soon the big lizard came back, still had sticks in his ears. He was yelling and flailing his hands, the lion was just screaming at the iguana. The iguana couldn't hear a thing. Who, what, when, where, how, who, what? The lion said, what are these sticks in your ears? Pow, pow. What's wrong with you trying to play tricks on the python? I thought the pythons was your friend. What evil are you planning against the python?" The Iguana thought for a moment, I'm not planning anything against the python, he is my friend. The snake said, well why wouldn't you speak to me this morning? Hmm. Iguana thought for a moment, he said, I didn't speak to you because I didn't see you or hear you. That mosquito told me such a big lie I couldn't bear to hear anymore. And so I put sticks in my ears so I wouldn't hear the mosquito's lies and nonsense. The lion said, the mosquito? It was the Mosquito Oh! So, you mean to tell me it was the Mosquito who annoyed the Iguana, who frightened the Python, who scared the rabbit, who alarmed the crow, who alerted the monkey, who killed the Owlet, and now Mother Owl won't call for the sun to rise so the day can come, punish the Mosquito! The other animals jumped in, punish the Mosquito, punish the Mosquito, punish the Mosquito, punish the Mosquito! Punish the mosquito. Punish the mosquito. That's all, Mother. All needed to hear. She flew onto a tree branch, turned to the east, and hooted three times. Hoot,
9: hoot,
5: hoot. And that big yellow ball of fire called the sun rose, and the day broke. But do you know to this day that mosquito has not been caught? She hid under a big leaf of a bush and refused to come out. And every time she flies around a human being's ears today, she will ask the same dumb question. Bzzz, is everybody still mad at me? Bzz, is everybody still mad at me? Bzz, is everybody still mad at me? Bzz, is everybody still mad at me? And when she does that, she gets an answer that she does not expect. Pow, ouch, what was that? Oh. Just a mosquito.
2: And there you have it, from Bobby Norfolk, the reason why those pesky mosquitoes always buzz in your ears. Such a pleasure to listen to that story from Bobby. Now, sometimes stories come from prepared performances by talented storytellers who have worked on stories to share from the stage or the studio. But other stories, just as good, come out in simple conversation between friends. In fact, how about we do that right now? A conversation with a friend. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the films that we see, the books that we treasure, the meals that we share, the songs that we remember, and of course, the things that happen to us and the way we pass them down as stories from teller to listener, sometimes over generations and generations, and talking about some of the ways in which great stories get down into our lives and the shape they take once they're there is something we love to do with friends here on The Appleseed. I'm very, very pleased to be joined by Dolores Hydock from her home in Alabama. You know, I, I look on books. There are classics about which a lot of us have potent memories. And Little Women is one of those classics. Right.
13: Talk In fact, I don't, about I don't know if you saw Time Magazine recently had a list of the hundred children's classics from the last hundred years. And yeah. Little Women was number one. Still, <laughs> Little Women was number one on there. Yeah. Um, but, but for me, a, a memory came from that book. Not... So much because of the story in the Mm -hmm. book, but because of the book itself, the physical book itself, like probably what hundreds of millions of people, I don't know how many (laughs) in these past (laughs) pandemic months, um, every now and then I get it in my head that I need to clean something. Yeah. You know, the, the, the shed, the garage, something. And one day I decided I needed to clean off the living room built in bookcases and just decide which books I was going to keep and which I was going to donate to the library yeah. and which ones I just wanted to reread for the thousandth time. And that's how I came across the book. Little Women. Now you can't see it on the radio, but it is a hardback edition of Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. I love the book, Sam. Oh my goodness. I cannot tell you how many times I have read Little Women. (laughs) And I think I first read it when I was eight years old. And then I read it again and again and again and again, always checking the book out from the library. Yeah. The Spring Street branch of the Reading, Pennsylvania Public Library, which which was a library like you know libraries used to be before they got friendly. You know, it was it was a cathedral. It you know it had high ceilings and shiny floors and and a high priestess at the altar of the checkout desk. You remember her? And um and and when I was when I was six years old, got my first junior library card. I could not believe. The, the magic of this place, this library that had books you could take home and you could disappear into those books, whatever the story you could. You'd meet people, you'd go places, have adventures you couldn't have any other way. Yeah. And so thanks to the Spring Street branch copy of Little Women, I got to go over and over to 1860s Concord, Massachusetts hmm. and spend time with the four sisters of the March family.
9: Yeah.
13: But the Christmas, I was 10. I got my own copy of that book, a hardback edition, the pages, this creamy, white, thick paper, scrolly, italic lettering for the chapter headings, full color illustrations that showed me exactly what Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy looked like. And that is what they will always look like. I don't care how many versions of the movie Hollywood tries to put out. (laughs) The book, the book was my angel present that Christmas. A gift from the Christmas angel. Hmm. Because when I was a kid, Christmas Eve was the main part of the holiday. That's when we had the special meal, the special traditions. After dinner, you'd gather around the piano in the living room, you sing the Christmas carols. And then at 8.30 on Christmas Eve, my sisters and I had to go upstairs and take a nap because hmm. at 10 p.m., mother would come, wake us up, we'd get dressed up in our Christmas outfits, would walk the seven blocks to church for midnight mass. Uh, yeah, I tell you the truth, I don't know why we got dressed up to go to church because <laughs> it was cold on Christmas Eve. You know those cranberry velvet dresses were covered up with coats and sweaters, but we got dressed <laughs> up to go to church. We would come home probably two a.m., yeah. and that's when we'd have hot chocolate and start to open the Christmas presents. But before we could do that, we had to go upstairs, change our clothes, and check under the pillow for our angel present to see what Mm. the Christmas angel had brought for us. The angel present was not wrapped. Apparently angels do not have access to scotch tape and wrapping (laughs) paper. Uh, And it was always just something we really wanted or needed that year. You know, one year, my angel present was my first Timex watch, oh, wow. a Cinderella watch with the <laughs> Cinderella on the face of it, you know, with her blonde hair and her blue gown. Right. One year, one year, the angel, the Christmas angel brought me a set of poppet beads. I will bet you don't know what poppet beads are. Sam. <laughs> they are these <laughs> these hard plastic, brightly colored beads that popped one into the other. So you can oh, make yes. a necklace of whatever yeah. size you wanted. And when you got tired of that one, you could unpop them and repop them, you know. That was my angel <laughs> present when I was 8. But the Christmas I was 10, my angel present was Little Women, my own mm-hmm. copy of Little Women. Now as my as my two sisters and I got older, we always tried to figure out how our mother did it. You know, we knew it was her. We knew there there wasn't some Christmas angel. I mean, who else would it be? But she <laughs> never would admit to it. She'd say, oh no, no, no. It's uh, it wasn't me. It's the Christmas angel. We never could figure out how we never could catch her at it. I mean, the, <laughs> the 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 gift was not under the pillow when we went to take a nap, not there when we woke up. My mother walked with us to church, sat next to us the whole time, and yet at 2 a.m. when we came home, the angel present was there. But she <laughs> never would admit to doing it. One me was the Christmas angel. (laughs) Well, years went by. Decades went by. My mother was in her 80s. And one day she and I were talking about Christmas traditions, things we did when we were kids. And I asked her, I said, how did you do the Christmas angel? I mean, I know it had to be you. Come on, you're not going to you're not going to spoil the magic for me now. And she wouldn't admit to it. No, Mm -hmm. no, no. She said it wasn't me. It was the Christmas angel. And now that she's gone, now I understand that I think to her, part of her gift to us was her wanting us to believe in the possibility that even if you can't catch them at it, even if you don't know how they do it, there are angels at work in our lives, doing things for us in mysterious, wonderful kinds of ways. So that's why little women always makes me think of angels. Dolores Hydock, what a pleasure to have you with me on the Appleseed. Thanks Seed. so much, Sam. Thanks. It's been great to be here.
2: Such a pleasure to spend some time with our friend Dolores Hydock. Up next, stories from Diane Edgecombe, Diane Ferlat, Bill Harley, and a story about a close call on a saved life from the great North Carolina storyteller Donald Davis. Do stick around. I'm Sam Payne.
4: You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment.
8: Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne.
2: It's such a pleasure to have you with us for this hour of personal tales and folk tales and more, told for you by some of our favorite storytellers from all over the country. If you're just joining us, a moment ago you heard Bobby Norfolk with Why Mosquitoes Buzz in People's Ears, and you heard a conversation about the great Louisa May Alcott book, Little Women, with Alabama storyteller Dolores Hydock. Now, if you're new to storytelling and you're looking for the best place or maybe the best storyteller to dive into first, you really could do a lot worse than our next teller, Donald Davis. He's referred to in the storytelling community as the dean. Donald is a North Carolina teller who's been sharing his personal tales in festivals and concerts all over the country for decades. And we likely could have been deprived of his storytelling talents if his life wasn't saved by a loved one. Well, that may be a bit of an overstatement, but through the eyes of young Donald Davis, his Aunt Esther really did save his life. Here's Donald to tell us about it. A story called Aunt Esther Saves a Little Boy's Life from Donald Davis.
11: On the day that I was six years old, my Aunt Esther, one of my dad's sisters, called my mother and invited me ...to come spend my birthday with her. I loved going to Aunt Esther's house. We always had great adventures. My mother took me to Aunt Esther's house and dropped me off. And as soon as my mother was gone, Aunt Esther and I got in the car and went to town to go birthday shopping. We went to Eagle's 5 and 10 cent store, my favorite store in town. And we went back to the toy department... But Aunt Esther had already chosen what she wanted to buy from me. We looked up and down until she found it. She picked up a large box that was orange and green. And when she handed the box to me, I saw what it was. Sixty-four colors Crayola crayons. I'd never had more than eight colors in my whole life. And all of a sudden, here I had every color anyone could imagine. We went back to her house and Aunt Esther found some paper, gave me the handful of paper and put me in the living room. Then she said, now you stay right in here and draw pictures. I'm going into the kitchen and I'm going to make your birthday cake. I counted the pieces of paper. There were 20 sheets. In no time, I had drawn 40 pictures. One on the front of every sheet and one on the back of every sheet. And now I needed more paper. I thought about going to find Aunt Esther to ask her if she could find more paper. But then I thought, no, she's working on the birthday cake. I better not bother her i will look around in the living room and find paper myself there was no paper in the living room but as i looked all around i did see a place to draw a picture there was a piano against the inside wall above the piano there was a picture a beautiful picture in a gold frame it was a woman wearing a pink evening gown playing a piano with a vase of flowers on the piano and candles burning and beside that picture a nice open space on the wall just waiting to be filled with more artwork I climbed on the piano bench and then on top of the piano used my crayon box for a straight edge and the corner of the box to build the corners of the frame, colored a beautiful gold frame, and drew a picture of the first woman's sister, now wearing a blue dress, playing another piano. And as soon as I finished the whole picture, I went to find Aunt Esther to show her what I had done for her. When she saw the picture, she told me it was absolutely beautiful. And I never knew I had done anything wrong till my mother came to pick me up. I went to the door when my mother got there. I wanted her to see the artwork. I opened the door and turned around to point at the wall, and when I did... All of a sudden, I noticed the first picture had been moved. It was now hanging on a new nail covering my drawing on the wall so my mother would not see what I had done. In that moment, I knew Aunt Esther had saved a little boy's life. Thirty years later, Douglas Davis, our oldest son, was six years old. It was Halloween day, and somewhere on Halloween day, he was prowling in a drawer and found magic markers. They didn't say washable. They said permanent, indelible, will never come out. Douglas Davis chose an orange one because, after all, it was Halloween day, and he chose a black one. And armed with those two weapons of artistic destruction, he started through our house looking for a place to draw a jack-o'-lantern. He found a place in the living room. We called it the white leather chair. And right in the center of the seat back, he drew, outlined in black with eyes, nose, and mouth, and colored in, permanently orange, a gigantic jack-o'-lantern. He came to get me to show me what he had done. And when I saw it, I thought, oh my, how should I kill him? And then all of a sudden, I remembered the day at Aunt Esther's house, and I told Douglas the story of the time I drew on the wall. When I finished the story, I said, see, Douglas, my Aunt Esther saved a little boy's life. And he said, "Uh uh-uh, she saved two little boys' lives.
2: from a collection of stories called Mama Learns to Drive. That was a story called Aunt Esther Saves a Little Boy's Life, told for you by Donald Davis here on the Appleseed. And up next, a story told by award-winning storyteller Diane Edgecombe. Diane hails from Boston. And if you're a longtime listener, you've heard her on the show before. Her rich and versatile voice is sometimes accompanied by beautiful music, as it is here in this story about a little girl whose busy life is interrupted in the best way by a magical spirit. The story is called Dancing Spirit of the Birch, And the storyteller is Diane Edgecombe, happy to bring it to you here on the Apple (laughs) Seed.
3: Long ago, in Czechoslovakia, there lived a young girl and her mother. And although they were very poor, that girl was always happy. She had such a light heart. She never had time to go into the village or play with any friends. There was always so much work to do. Every day she had to drive the goats up into the hills to search for new pasture. And while they were grazing, her mother didn't want her to be idle. Oh no. While she was there, she had to spin a large bundle of flaxen fibers into linen thread. She didn't even own a distaff on which to wind the flax to bring, but she was resourceful. She would wind the flax around her head, and wearing the strange hat she would drive the goats along. Sometimes she had to travel very far to find new pasture. And so it was one day she found herself on a grassy slope near a quiet old birch grove. As the goats munched on the soft grass, the girl set to work, attaching the flaxen fibers to her spindle. she started it whirring on the ground, twisting in more and more flaxen fibers, spinning and singing her favorite spinning song. "Uta ye preach. That day as she was spinning that flax into thread and spinning that flax into thread, she noticed someone watching her from among the birch trees. It was a tall, slender woman, dressed all in white, and as she leaned towards the girl, a soft breeze caressed her. Your song sounds so joyful. It reminds me of when I was young. Tell me, do you like to dance? Dance? Ah, uh, I think so. I never tried. You never tried? Oh, but you must dance, little one. Come, let me teach you. Oh, well, I, I would like to, but I have all this flax that I have to spin into thread, and it takes all day. Well, whether it is flax or whether it is thread, it will be here tomorrow, but maybe I will not. Come, let us dance. And so those two danced in and out among the birch trees so quickly and so lightly that the grass was not trampled or bent. And as they danced, their long hair wrapped itself around the birch trees and left strong black lines. Troop to troop was craft so yevier knee. so shlare and yevy. Athiday, never prevent. He's she, he's lo she, tobrem sem no she, Tapto's broyer, drabby's troyer, Bezmishkani, Pochel nanny, Po me day, Po me day, Bezmishkani, The girl went home that day skipping and singing but when she saw her mother, she remembered she hadn't spun the flax. She hid the half-spun spindle. The next morning, the girl wound that day's flax round her head, plus all the flax left from the day before. She gathered her goats and left for the birch grove extra early. She was determined today she would spin all of that flax into thread. As the goats grazed, she set her spindle humming on the ground, twisting in the flaxen fibers, spinning and singing. Ujeta laska, ujeprije, ujeta laska, ujeprije. Bevolo je malenko, moja panenko, neni. Oh! The girl dropped her work. There was the lady in white. Come. Will you dance? Oh, I'm sorry, I can't dance. Look at all of the flax I have to spin into thread today. If you dance with me, said the woman in white, I will help you in your work after. "'Wonderful!' said the girl. And so those two danced in and out among the birch trees so quickly and so lightly that the grass was not trampled, the grass was not bent. And as they danced, their long hair wrapped itself around the birch trees and left fine black lines. "'Troop to
4: troop was brav, so
3: sami so so ne Oh no! I must go home at once! And she ran down the hill, chasing the goats before her. It was sunset and she was already late. When she arrived home, her mother was waiting for her there you are my daughter you're so late i was so worried about you now where is the thread you spun today you forgot to give it to me yesterday as well i don't have any thread did you lose it no i i didn't spin today mother i didn't spin yesterday i i wanted to dance my daughter You must not dance. We are poor. We have to work. I know. The next morning the girl had so much flax wound round her head she could barely keep her balance. She wobbled her way to the birch grove so weighed down with her work she couldn't even look up and see how beautiful the day was. And there at the edge of the birch grove was a slender woman in white holding out her hand Will you dance? Dance? I can't even walk with all this work I have to do. I will help you. Didn't I say I would help you? I can do it so easily. The woman took the flaxen fibers from the girl, set them on a birch limb that reached up like long tapering fingers, and swaying and singing together they spun.. <speaking in Spanish> There it was, a spindle of the finest linen thread. Come, one last dance I will teach you. Together they danced, gracefully in and out among the birch trees, and as they danced, their long hair wrapped around the birch trees and left no trace. It was like they were the wind through the trees, so light and free.
4: As beautiful as a
3: dream, but one that the girl would never forget. Here, said the woman in white, I have a gift for you. And she gave the girl a large birch basket. Now don't look inside until you're all the way home. I won't. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye, birch lady. But on the way home, she thought, I wonder what the birch lady has given me. She likes me very much. She opened up the basket. Oh, (laughs) it's just dried up old birch leaves. She started to pull some out to scatter them on the ground, but then she thought, No, I'm going to keep every one. These soft leaves will make good bedding for my goats. When she arrived home, her mother asked her for the thread. My daughter, how did you do this? No one could spin linen thread this fine. Well, I had some help. There's this tall lady. She lives in the birch grove, mother. She's beautiful. and She always dresses in white. My daughter, you have seen the spirit of the birch grove. I hope you were nice to her. I hope you were kind to her. Oh, yes, she likes me very much. She gave me a present. But it's, you know, it's only dried birch leaves. She gave you a gift. Let me see. Together they opened the basket and pulled out one of the leaves. In the darkness and with time, Each one had
4: turned into a leaf of pure gold. (sing)
2: dancing spirit of the birch told for you by Diane Edgecombe from a collection of stories called In the Groves. It's a collection of stories about trees, stories from all over the world. And having heard from Diane Edgecombe, stick around for another Diane, Diane Ferlat, who will share a story with us called Penny for Your Thoughts. It's coming up on The Appleseed.
3: You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment.
4: Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne,
2: It's such a pleasure to be with you on this episode of The Apple Seed a moment ago. You heard Donald Davis with a story called Aunt Esther Saves a Little Boy's Life and Diane Edgecombe with a story called Dancing Spirit of the Birch. And as we mentioned, we've got another Diane to introduce you to. This next story is from the Oakland storyteller Diane Ferlat. You know, it's so easy for us to get wrapped up in our own little lives that we fail sometimes to see the needs of others. We tend to bury ourselves in our phones whenever we have downtime. Well, in this story, during a meal at a restaurant, Diane decides to engage a lonely-looking older gentleman in conversation. And that conversation teaches Diane volumes about the lives of others and even sparks a new friendship. Here's Diane Frelat with Penny for Your Thoughts here on The Appleseed.
6: As a storyteller, I do a lot in schools. And one time, on one of my storytelling tours, I had two assemblies to do at a school in the morning. A quick lunch break in the afternoon and two assemblies in the afternoon. Well, I finished my two assemblies in the morning and I drove to a nearby restaurant, Denny's or Marie Callender's or something like that. And I told them I was in a hurry. And she said, no problem ma'am, I'll seat you right away. She brought me in to a booth, and she sat me down, gave me a menu, and I sat there to wait. But as I sat there waiting, it was a little warm in there, so I got up, took my jacket off, and I put it on the seat on the other side of my booth. But as I laid my coat down on the seat, I looked up, and the booth in front of me, there was an older white man sitting there facing me and his eyes looked far far away and he looked very sad like something was worrying him so i said to him penny for your thoughts and he kind of snapped out of it and he said what did you say to me and i said penny for your thoughts and he said ah well i sat down with an attitude And all those little prejudices that we all have, you know, sometimes, inside begin to bubble up. And I said to myself, mean old white man, you can't even be friendly with people. How come he has to be so grumpy and so unfriendly? Why can't he be nice? But as I sat there, I started thinking. And I said to myself, what are you doing? Why did you have to say mean, old, white man? Why couldn't you just say mean, old man? And you don't know what's bothering that old man. You don't know why his eyes might be so far away or why he might be looking so sad or upset. Chill out. So I did. I sat there with my book. I always bring a book looking for another story. His food comes first. Mm-hmm. then my food comes and I sit there reading and eating eating and reading and reading and eating and he finishes first then I see him get up he's going to go up front to pay but to go up front he has to pass my booth and just as he gets to my booth he stops and I think uh oh And he turns, and he leans down toward me, and he said, What did you say to me? And I said, Penny, for your thoughts. He said, Young lady, if you only knew, my wife died three weeks ago, and I don't know what to do. I said, I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what, and I thought maybe I should say something. He said, young lady, you sure got that right. I don't know what to do. You believe we were married 61 years? I said, 61 years? To the same woman? And that made him smile. Then he came really close to my face and he said, You believe I'm 90 years old. I said, you're 90 years old? Let me touch you. I want to live to be that old. Wow, you're 90 years old? Married to the same woman 61 years? You are blessed. You are blessed. You don't have to worry about a thing. Because everything is going to be alright. It's going to be that old man's eyes filled with tears and he patted me on my left shoulder and he said thank you young lady thank you and he left now that old man he didn't have to stop and say anything to me but he did I didn't have to say anything to him But I did. Two cultures coming together in that one little moment of life. Two generations coming together in that one little moment of life. You know, they say the most important person in this world is the one you're with right now. Some time in our lives
12: We all have pain We all have sorrow But if we are wise We know that there's Always tomorrow Lean on me When you're not strong I'll be your friend. I'll help you brother when you need a hand. We all need somebody to lean on. I just might have a problem that you'll understand. We all need somebody to
9: lean
12: on. Lean on me. When you're not strong, I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry for it won't be long till I'm gonna need somebody to lean on So call me, call me, call me, call me,
2: call me. Diane Ferland with Penny for Your Thoughts here on the Appleseed. That story featured Diane's frequent musical collaborator, Eric Pearson, on the guitar. We thought we'd wrap up today with another recording made right here in the Appleseed studio. This is the great storyteller and songwriter, Bill Harley, with a song about how big a difference a person can make, even if that person can only do a little. We'll wrap up today's episode with Little Things Make Big Things by Bill Harley, here on the Appleseed.
14: I'm gonna start off with a song that um, it's, it's a pretty new song. And it's when you work with kids um, and people who work with kids, um, they're aware that um, sometimes the kids aren't taken seriously and their lives aren't taken seriously. And really um, the things that happen to kids are really important. And I, a lot of times those people who work with kids, their work is not taken seriously either. Um, and it's just one of the things that you've got to find your own purpose, uh, and, and know that that, that has value. And the people, the, the good people know that. Um, I was at a festival, uh, a year or so ago and they had asked me, they wanted to have a, uh children's tent, a children's stage. And I said I would come and I got there. And as often happens with children's things, it was often a little corner and the sound system wasn't very good and they hadn't really told people anything about it. So I was kind of off there in my corner, just, I, just about what I expected. And I, I sat uh, that night and watched on the maid stage, there were 10,000 people screaming and chanting. And I thought that my work is a little work. Uh, it, that it's a little work. And there, um, while people were chanting and all singing the 10,000 people, I wrote uh, the the verse, the chorus to this song. Um, and so I have a little part for you out there. Little things make big things Big things make a difference So I know that little things do too So I take care of little things Because they make a difference I just do what I can do Here's a drop of rain Fall into the ground Drops turn to a trickle Then a stream Stream turns to a river Flows into an ocean You never know what just might be Cause little things make big things Big things make a difference so I know that little things do too. So I take care of little things because they make a difference. I just do what I can do. And here's your part, it goes like this na 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 far off in the sky a star is being born a flower opens right beside your door nothing comes from nothing everything starts somewhere no one knows for sure just what's in store one thing that i want you to know i will stand beside you while you grow while you grow na 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 nah, 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 nah. One voice is one voice, one more than no voice. One voice more than no voice at all. But one voice and one voice is one more than one voice every big thing out there started small so little things make big things, big things make a difference so I know that little things do too I take care of little things because they make a difference I just do what I can I just do what I can. I just do what I can do. And one more time. Na, 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 na. Na, 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 na. Na, 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 na,
9: na, Nice singing.
2: Harley with a song about how little things make big things. What a great way to end our time together. But before we go, we want to remind you that for the next few weeks, we're engaged in a month of service, working hard with our audience and our BYU Radio family to complete 10,000 acts of service. We hope you'll be a part of it. An act of service can be anything. Making a meal for someone who needs one, mowing the lawn of someone who might need it, telling a story even to someone who could use it. Find out more and let us know how you're serving at byuradio.org slash service I'm Sam Payne our producer is Jeff Simpson I can't wait to be with you again on the Appleseed
4: thanks for joining us for an hour of stories music and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by the Appleseed the show is a production of BYU Radio we'll see you next time